Sweet Jesus, thank you for this privilege to pray, uh, to be able to come into your presence. And I just ask that you would bless us one more time today, Lord, with a message that is relevant, that is pertinent to the needs in this room. And I just pray for an extra special measure of your wisdom and your discernment as I tell the story of your faithfulness on my behalf. And I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So this afternoon's message again is entitled, When You Lose Your First Love. Uh, what I'd like to do is just kind of give a reality check. When we say yes to Jesus and embark upon the Christian journey, there's a warfare that we're engaging in. Like we live on a battlefield, and it's not always easy. And there can be times when we make these decisions for Christ that Satan comes against us in ways that we weren't expecting. He kind of lays us out on the mat, and it just... It slows us down. It can even cripple us. And it's hard to know what to do and how to move forward. Uh, we can have these moments of difficulty in times when our experience gets dry. And in those moments, we can be tempted to make compromises, to spend less time with God, and to sacrifice our beliefs for acceptance or relief. We can find ourselves maybe watering down our experience, not standing so firmly because we just want to break. Right? We're tired of getting beat up. We're tired of being persecuted, tired of going through difficulty. We don't want to keep fighting this fight anymore. That can happen. Satan, I believe that Satan, if he cannot get you, I talked about this earlier this morning, that if he can't deceive you, he'll discourage you. I believe that one of his favorite tools is to press you and to wear you out slowly. He's willing to run a marathon. Some of us think that he's just one of these quick jab boxers. I'm not left with that impression. He's willing to wear you down. And when this happens, we can end up making concessions if we're not careful. So what I'd like to do is cover some brief examples of church history and then kind of move into my story because I'm going to tell it differently, this message, than I normally do just because of the significance of being in Loma Linda. So in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we as Seventh-day Adventists take the belief of interpreting end-time prophecy through the lens of historicism. We believe that things are unfolding in a historical sense, not everything's in the future or everything was in the past. And in Revelation chapter 2, in the seven churches, each one of these churches is representing a generation uh, not a specific generation, but a time period throughout church history, from the first century church, Revelation 2, verse 1, all the way until the current day church, Revelation chapter 3, and in the church of Laodicea. So in Revelation chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, listen to this. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And then he says, I know your what? I know your works your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and that you've tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. You're still doing work. Religious stuff is still happening. Verse 4, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and do what? Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place again unless you repent. Wait a minute, but I thought that they have works because he saw their works. But then he says, go back and do the first works. Here's basically what happened. In Galatians, we're told that it's a faith that works by love, right? This is the kind of the, the premise that God is looking for in our experience but the first century church went through a great deal of persecution and difficulty, and somehow along the way, they lost their first love. And so it went from a faith that works by love to just work. 
And that can happen inside of the faith movements, yeah? We can shift from this faith that works by love to just work, still doing stuff, but our hearts aren't in it in the same way. It's not that love for Jesus that fuels the work, it's just, I probably ought to, right? The Andrew Study Bible comments on verse 4 in this way. It says that love is the first thing to slip when one turns away from God. That literally your love for God can diminish while you're still doing things for God. Right? It's no longer a faith that works by love. It's just work. Verse 7. Uh, verse 6. But, but this you have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So this church starts out at the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, but as time goes on and persecution heats up, there are some big choices that have to be made on how they're going to weather this. Paul warned the elders at the church of Ephesus, of all places, that savage wolves would come in among them after his departure in Acts 20 and 29. Paul dies in the A.D. 60s, right, in the mid-60s. And so when we lose our first love, we first need to recognize the fact that we do not have the same love and fire that we had at the beginning of our experience. We've got to deal with that. Right? We've got to come face to face with that reality and acknowledge that. And the solution given is for us to sincerely repent for this disconnect and return to our first works, to pursue that first love once again. We're told, I believe it's in Steps to Christ, but it's in a, in a place where Ellen White talks about how if you find yourself that you've kind of wearied in your experience, go back to where you left him. Go back to where you left off. Go back to the things that you did when you did have that love for him. But go to Revelation chapter 3 to the last church. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. Got to make hay here for time's sake. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. Does that sound familiar? I know your works, that you were neither cold nor hot, and I could wish that you were cold or hot. A very similar situation, lovelessness, but just this tepid experience, right? That fire, that zeal isn't there anymore. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This type of experience makes him nauseous. Why? Because you say that I'm rich, have become wealthy, and that I have need of nothing. I don't need anything. I have what I need. I'm good to go. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You do not recognize your true condition. I counsel you, therefore, to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and that you anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. The big problem here is that we don't actually see that we have a problem. We're blind, and so God in His great love for us has to rebuke us and open our eyes to the issue at hand. Love requires action, right? It's not because He doesn't like you that He's rebuking you. It's because He loves you and wants you to be revived that He has to deal with this. He has to open our eyes to our true condition. But thankfully, He offers us a solution, a threefold solution. Gold tried in the fire, a faith that works by love. White garments, Christ's spotless robe of righteousness. And thirdly, I salve spiritual discernment to recognize our true condition and to see ourselves truly. So this particular church that he's speaking to, they got problems, right? They've fallen asleep at the wheel to some degree. They lost the purpose for why they're there, and they're just kind of here, 
right? In the same way that it's no longer a faith that works by love, it's just work. There's religious stuff happening, but they're not who he intended for them to be. They've lost something along the way. The zeal has watered down. And it's to this very people that he does this next thing in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. People whose experience makes him nauseous, but he still loves them, right? I love you, and that's why I'm having to be honest with you, but your experience troubles me. It, it, it sickens me, and it's to these people that in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. Jesus seems to still feel that there's something of value inside of the home that he does not have access to. Something about this person's experience that's troubling to him, there's still something of enough value that he's standing at the door waiting. And we cover this back during Restoration, but it, in the original language, this is actually in the continuative, which means that he has been knocking, he is knocking now, and has no intention of not knocking tomorrow. Well, why would someone stand and knock at a door that persistently unless there was something inside of value to them? Amen? Even when we have an experience that may make him nauseous, he still sees something of value in you. This is still what he sees, and he promises to give us power to change and to find the revival that we so desperately need. He's still here, he's not leaving, and he's still willing to bless you and give you what you need to get out of this situation. I think it's amazing. And something that cannot be lost sight of is the fact that this is referring to our precious movement, the Advent movement. Ellen White, as early as 1852, first diagnosed the Advent movement as being Laodicea. We were not incorporated until 1863. This is eight years after 1844. Six years after 18, no, eight years after 1844. And... Sorry, I haven't slept much, and I've traveled way too much. Anyway, and, and 1863 is what? 11 years later, to this intervening time, and yet she diagnosed the Advent movement in this condition. We have a need of repentance. We have a need to acknowledge where we are and our desperate need of Jesus. We have to do this. We have to recognize this. And I find this very interesting. In 2010, this is not a political statement, so please don't think of it as a political statement. But in 2010, we elected a new general conference president, and there was a new initiative that came with Jerry and Janet Page being in the ministerial department, the Revival and Reformation Committee. How many people have heard of that? Revival and Reformation Committee. So that particular initiative is through ministerial, and Jerry and Janet Page, speaking during the annual council in 2010, Janet's telling a story of how she lost her first love. As she went through this experience where she was, bit, she was char cherishing and harboring bitterness towards someone else, and it was killing her experience, her faith experience. And God wrestles with her. God brings her to the point of surrender after a series of years. She picks up the phone. She calls a person. She deals with it and began to find that revival that she so desperately needed but was wrestling to go through the, the difficult part to get there. She's telling this story, and Dwight Nelson is sitting in the audience. I say audience, it sounds like it's a movie theater, but he's sitting in the congregation in the annual council, the general conference building. And as Janet Page, and it's a powerful testimony, beautiful testimony, but as she's praying, this is what Dwight's thinking. Way to go, Jesus. Way to work her over. Glad I don't have any bitterness. And then Jesus speaks to him and says, yeah, what about this, Dwight? I don't want to talk about that, Jesus. At least I don't have bitterness. And this begins a process of Jesus wrestling tenaciously with Dwight 
all through the night. He does the Monday morning devotional. If you go to Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O.com, and search the phrase Monday devotional, you'll see this message. It is powerful and amazing that Dwight Nelson shared. But as he's preaching, he goes into Zechariah chapter 12. Go there with me, would you? Zechariah chapter 12, and I need to move on. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. Speaking on the topic of repentance in the context of revival. Repentance in the context of revival. Zechariah chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. It says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. They each individual, first of all, this is speaking of two classes of people. On the house of David, the leadership, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the laity, the membership. And each of them are going to have to come to an individual sense of accountability for the death of Jesus. I killed him. I'm responsible for the death of Jesus. And Dwight kept pressing that point home. It says, these distinguished men on the platform here, they killed him. Who were they? Ted Wilson, Mark Finley, and I believe Gary Krause. Uh, but that may have been a different message where Gary was in the background. But some third person, I forget who they were. And, but he's making the point that we need to come face to face with the fact that we're responsible for the death of Jesus. I, I individually. And it does something. It brings a soul-crushing repentance and leads to revival. And when we reach that point of recognition of our individual responsibility, Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1 happens. And in that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, for the leadership, and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the, me the membership, for sin and for uncleanness. And this is where they get the words to that beloved hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. When we recognize our desperate need of Jesus, that our sins have crucified Jesus, it awakens us to our desperate need to be cleansed and healed by Jesus. And a fountain opens for revival and for renewal. And he preaches this powerful message on this. But then he gets to the end of his message, and there's kind of this awkward silence. And then he says, he tells the story of how he was hearing Janet Page talking the night before. Way to go, Jesus. Way to work her over. Glad I don't have bitterness. And then he says, and then Jesus told me, yeah, but what about this? I don't want to deal with that. And it takes him a moment. He composes himself, and then Dwight Nelson confesses before the entire annual council that I've been wrestling with personal feelings of envy towards Mark Finley for years. Mark Finley's on the platform. Mark gets up, walks over. They hug each other. Mark tells him he loves him. And it's this amazing testimony of Dwight realizing, I've got to give these things to Jesus. Now is not the time to be holding on to bitterness, to envy, to jealousy, to unforgiveness. I've got to deal with this. right? If I'm going to get access to this fountain filled with blood to be cleansed, if I want really to have this experience of revival and rejuvenation of my experience, I've got to go all in. And I haven't been. I've been cherishing these feelings for years. It was a powerful testimony. I believe that God is trying to get the, the, the attention of us. Because Dwight even mentions this in the sermon. We can talk about revival till we're blue in the face. But if it doesn't look like me owning the death of Jesus, we're wasting our time, man. If we don't come face to face with our responsibility for the death of Jesus and repent of our sins, we're not going to find revival. And until we choose to martyr our pride and reconcile our differences, it's not going to happen. What do you think the disciples were doing for 10 days in the upper room? Dealing with stuff that mattered. 
searching their own hearts, repenting of their sins, and reconciling their differences one with another. And this is what's a prerequisite for us to find revival. And he dealt with it in such an amazing way. And as Ezekiel chapter 36 and Romans 2, 4 allude to this, that you're going to see your sins and your situation, and you're going to loathe yourselves in your own sight. Romans 2, 4 is basically quoting Ezekiel 36 and says that uh, the goodness of God leads to repentance. When we see that Jesus is willing to do this for me, knowing what I've done to him, it does something to the human heart and to the human psyche. And it brings about these principles here for revival. And just this amazing, amazing testimony. A couple years later, someone was preaching at the annual council on the topic of Christ our righteousness. And that we're not going home until we figure this message out. And I just see how God is speaking to our church. He's trying to get our attention. We need to repent of our sins, adopt the messages God would have, and let's take this thing home. Amen? And I see God at work, but even our movement wrestles, and we can't run from that. We can't shirk from that. Revelation 3 is talking about us. We, we have wrestled with this Laodicean condition. Now, what I'd like to share with for the rest of the time here are some lessons that I've been learning since Restoration, actually. It began at Restoration. I mentioned at Restoration during the message, uh, Don't Forget Where You Came From, about my own battle in public ministry with depression, discouragement, loneliness, and radical poverty while traveling around the country and sharing the gospel with people. And I didn't even understand the depression part until much later. But then I had to come face to face the fact that this is, this is actually happening in your experience. And I had to deal with that. And it, it wasn't like it was this terrible thing that I did or whatever, but just like I had to acknowledge that this is actually the case and I had to start piecing some things together. So here's some lessons I'm learning along the way that have been of a great blessing to me in getting out of this situation. Again, that message is don't forget where you came from. I think it's on Audioverse. It's on the Restoration Facebook page and stuff too to get that background because I don't have time to go into all of that. One of the things that's been really drawn out to me is the topic of surrender. The topic of surrender. So with Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, in the first few chapters of the book of Acts, Many times we talk about the money side, right? They said they would give all to God of their money. They didn't. And when they get called on it, they literally are struck dead in a moment. First Ananias and then Sapphira. But the real issue here is not money. The real issue is surrender. Claiming to give all to God while keeping some of our lives back to ourselves. And it's deadly. And that's the lesson God is trying to teach us. Right? You may not be struck dead in a moment when you're wrestling with this, but it leads to spiritual death. And this is the point that God is trying to drive home, that when we're claiming to give all to God but keeping something back for ourselves, we're losing a blessing and it's delaying our healing. And I did not fully understand all the parameters of what I wasn't surrendering to God until I kind of got confronted with the message face to face on this. In James chapter 4 and verse 7, many times we're used to hearing this, that resist the devil and he will flee from you, right? We hear that all the time. The problem is that's not the way the verse starts. I remember hearing someone preach a message on the topic of surrender. It's kind of one of their topics of specialty, if you will. And they were mentioning that they had this addiction in their life that they just could not get free from. Like, no matter what they did, they kept going back to this entertainment stuff that they just couldn't get away from. And it was really, really difficult for them. And they would even claim this promise, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so they would say that and they would still fall. They thought, this verse is broken. Like, this, this verse doesn't work. The Bible, like, what's the deal? And then they went back and read what the verse actually says. You know what it actually says? It says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And he recognized that he had not made a full surrender of this area of his life. God is not asking you to overcome with your own strength 
in this situation. He's asking you to be willing to receive his strength to deal with it. And many times we aren't wanting to because we like it. That's why we keep going to it. It's our pain pills, right? We're going through stuff in life. Every addiction we have in our experience is us seeking to numb pain that we're feeling. And this particular addiction happens to be one of our favorite pain pills. But the problem is it just leaves you to thirst again, as Jesus tells the woman at the well. What I have to offer you is vastly better than what you're coming here for. And besides, this water is just going to lead you to thirst again. And you know that. Will you take my water? And then you'll never thirst again. We have decisions to make in those moments of temptation and discouragement and when Satan is trying to pull us off the path there. But this guy had to come to terms to the fact that he had not made a complete surrender of this area of his life to God to do what he would please. And when he did so, you'll never believe it, he found strength to resist the devil and the devil fled from him. Amen? And I had to deal with some of this on my own too. Go to 1 John chapter 4. It's actually possible, it's kind of scary to think about to some degree, it's actually possible to make promises from God more important than the God of the promise. And it can get us in trouble because we cling tenaciously to something that God has promised to give us, but it's more important to us than he is, and so he can't give it to us yet. So we find ourselves clinging more tenaciously. God, keep your promise. God, keep your promise. And he wants to. But we have to allow him to be enough for us above all else. Amen? Then we're safe to be given this thing because we're not going to make an idol out of it. But in 1 John chapter 4, beginning of verse 16, this is what we're told here. We have known, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. And God is wanting this to be our experience, that we would not just have an intellectual knowledge, that we would have an experiential knowledge of the love and a belief in that love that God has for us. Many times we get ourselves in troubles because we don't think that God actually loves us, and we don't actually want to believe that because of all the what we've done. Right? We would rather allow shame to define our view of reality than God's view of us through the lens of the gospel and his belief in us. I'm nothing but a fill-in-the-blank. I'm an addict. I got problems. I'm this. I'm that. But we need to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. And then it says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And then we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. We talked about this last night, actually. But we love him because he first loved us. We need to be willing to receive that and stop fighting him in his pursuit of us. And it's easy in our brokenness and in our shame to reject something that makes so much sense. And so when you come to know and believe the love that God has for you, and that you find a love awakening in your heart because he first loved you, the topic of surrender loses all of its legalistic feel. It loses all of it because you recognize if he thinks this highly of me and is willing to give this much for me, why wouldn't I say yes to him? He would never lead me somewhere that I would not choose to go if I knew what he knew. I phrase it this way. The only things that God requires of us to do are the things that we ourselves would choose to do if we knew what he knew. If we knew what that was doing to us, if we knew how it was hindering our experience with him, we'd let go of it years ago. But because we're believing lies about ourselves and God's love towards us, it causes a lot of difficulties. It's phrased this way in the Desire of Ages. When the soul, uh, page 324, it's a commentary on the life of Christ. When the soul surrenders itself to Christ, a new power takes possession of the new heart. 
A change is wrought which man can never accomplish for himself, and it's a supernatural work bringing a supernatural element into human nature. The soul that is yielded to Christ becomes his own fortress, which he holds in a revolted world. We're literally these vessels of his in this battle that's happening on the world. And he intends that no authority shall be known in it but his own. There's a sense of jealousy to God's love. And it's totally reasonable. When you think about what the other side's doing to us, they're using us like a plow mule. Why on earth will we find sympathy for someone who's using and abusing us? We had this crazy Stockholm syndrome with sin. We find sympathy in our captivity and we spurn the love that we could have in Christ. It seems nonsensical, but it happens, right? We wrestle with this at times. A soul thus kept in possession by the heavenly agencies is impregnable to the assaults of Satan. But unless we do yield ourselves to the control of Christ, we shall be dominated by the wicked one. And this is what this guy's experience was, that he wasn't surrendering this thing to God. So he would say, resist the devil, but he wouldn't flee from him. Because the topic of surrender was not fully understood or being lived out. Surrender makes sense in response to the gospel. It's not legalistic. It's just common sense. If God is leading me here and he thinks that highly of me, of course I'll go. Why wouldn't I? It's the first thing. And so I had to kind of come to terms with the fact that there were things that I had not fully surrendered to God that weren't like these massively immoral things, but they were my pain pills nonetheless. They were more important to me in my times of need than going to God, right? Those time killers that we have, they just kind of suck our, our energies away and get us in trouble. Ministry of Healing says this, many of us, page 480, many of us, uh, many who profess to be Christ followers have an anxious, troubled heart because they are afraid to trust themselves with God. Notice they're not anxious because they trust God. They're anxious because they're afraid to trust him. They do not make a complete surrender to him, for they shrink from the consequences that such a surrender may involve. We don't even know, but we're just sure of the fact that the one thing that we feel that we can't live without, he's going to come looking for it. So I can't go all in because I know he's going to come take this thing off the plate. I don't want to deal with that right now, right? If Jesus is knocking on the door of my heart in the context of surrender, maybe I've let him in the front door of my house, but I don't want him in my pantry right now. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want him in my closet. Don't want them in my entertainment chest. Could just be core beliefs that we're cherishing, not just externals, right? Not just behavioral things. So we're afraid of the consequences that such a surrender may involve. But unless they do make this surrender, they cannot find what? Peace. There are many whose hearts are aching under a load of care because they seek to reach the world standard. We're exhausted, not because we're trying to reach God's standard. Many times we're exhausted because we're trying to reach the world standard. And let's just be honest. You're not going to be good enough for the world. Isn't that right, ladies? Right? If they're photoshopping beautiful Hollywood actresses, what chance do we feel that we have? Right? Or for you men, like you can't provide well enough. You can't be sensitive enough. You can't be strong enough. Like the world continually tells you that you are not enough and we will sell our souls to try to be enough. And then when Jesus comes to us with the appeal that he is enough, we say no. Right? We'll sell our souls to try to be good enough for them, but we'll refuse to believe that he is enough for us. And then when we wrestle, we don't have what we need, we feel, for what God expects. He's got that too. Our Lord desires him to lay aside this yoke of bondage. We thought his yoke was heavy. Mm -mm. The world's yoke. 
He invites them to accept his yoke, and he says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Worry is blind and cannot discern the future, but Jesus sees the end from the beginning. And in how many difficulties? In every difficulty, he has his way prepared to bring relief. In every difficult situation you have, Jesus already has a way prepared to bring relief. And how many good things does he withhold from those that walk uprightly? No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Our Heavenly Father has a thousand ways to provide for us, of which we know how much. Nothing. And those who accept the one principle of making the service of God supreme will find perplexities vanish and a plain path set before their feet. Sometimes we're wrestling with knowing what God wants because we're afraid of what God wants. So we don't get the answers. And then we think God won't tell me what His will is. I don't want to know what His will is. So He's being a gentleman. We'll say, God, tell me what your will is, whatever you want. But in the back of our mind, we're saying, but I really don't want to deal with this, so don't ask for that. And so God ends up having to honor the prayer of our heart instead of the prayer of our mouth. You ever been there? God, take all that I am except for this. I really don't want to deal with this right now. I'll do whatever you want. I just don't want to deal with this right now. He has to listen to the prayer of our heart instead of the prayer of our mouth because that's what we actually mean. Does that make sense? And so sometimes we don't get the answers we're seeking when we're seeking to know the will of God because we're kind of afraid of what the answer may be. And the true solution to this is to know and believe the love that he has for us. Amen? That allows those walls of prejudice and fear to come down because perfect love casts out fear. Christ Object Lessons 159. No outward observances can take the place of simple faith and entire renunciation of self. But no man can empty himself of self. We can only consent for Christ to accomplish the work. And then comes the quote that we're acquainted with, but she gives the parameters before that. Then the language of the soul will be, Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, and raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. And it is only at the beginning of the, it is not only at the beginning of the Christian life that this renunciation of self is to be made. Some of us think once surrendered, always surrendered, right? We may not believe in once saved, always saved, but once surrendered, always surrendered. Look, I surrendered to Jesus when I said yes. It's like a husband telling his wife, look, I told you I loved you when I married you. If anything changes, I'll let you know, right? And not that I recommend doing that if you want to stay married, but like we, sometimes we had this kind of crazy view that, look, surrender is only for when I say yes to Jesus. It's actually the way that you keep those embers of commitment going about what we talked about last night. So it's a, con it's a continual process. At every advanced step heavenward, it is to be renewed. All our good works are dependent on a power outside of ourself. Therefore, there needs to be a continual reaching out of heart after God, out of the heart after God. A continual, earnest, heartbreaking confession of sin and humbling of the soul before him. Only by constant renunciation of self and dependence on Christ can we walk safely. And again, none of this feels like legalism when we know and believe the love that God has for us. This is where our compass has to be set to true north. Then surrender makes sense. This actually happened before restoration. I actually talked about this in the message, do you want to be made well? You can look that up because I won't have time to cover that. But that's been another component that's helped me in getting out of this trap of the core beliefs that I was believing. It's a book called The Hidden Half of the Gospel by Paul Conniff, C-O-N-E-F-F. And uh, he's, he's a friend now and a mentor and counselor. But uh, anyway, his stuff is really, really helpful. All right. How many people know this good-looking guy? 
super good friend of mine. I love him with all of my heart. Was so glad that we got to do ministry together earlier this year. So here's where the vulnerability kicks in, and I don't know where to throttle it back. So I'm going to try to be vague uh, to the best of my ability. Okay, so I'm at Restoration. I run into a situation just before Restoration that kind of gets my attention. And I don't know if you've ever had this. Like there's a job offer that comes your way. Maybe you start to get like this whiff of hope for healing, maybe in a situation, something else. But there's a promise of God or not even a promise at this stage, but something that seems desirable to you. But then you just try to disqualify yourself from something that looks like something good could happen to you. You ever been there? Looks like something good may come your way and you start making all excuses. Oh, that could never happen for me. That, you know, that job's out of my league. The situation's out of my league. There's no way I could get healing, whatever. So I found myself in one of those situations. Someone in this room told me I was stupid for thinking that. I love them to death for that. Like, that's dumb, I think, was their particular response. Like, why would you say that? Then they kind of walked me through their own situation. But then I spoke to Neville about it. So I, we drove back that night after preaching and he did music and stuff. And we're sitting in a rental car in someone's driveway. And I tell Neville what's going on, and I tell him the whole situation. This just seems way out of my league. Like, I don't just stand a chance in this. Like, I don't even know if I should consider such a life option, like, you know, whether it be a job or whatever. I just don't know if I should consider this. And then Neville was used by God as an instrumentality to speak sense into my life. And literally, this conversation has radically changed the trajectory of my life. I cannot overstate that. And so I talked to Neville about it, and this is what comes out of Neville's mouth. He said, brother, i got to ask you a question. Are you giving the desires of your heart to God? Thought about it for a second. And the immediate thought that comes into my mind is what happens whenever someone calls out the real issue at hand. We make excuses with fig leaves of piety. You ever done that? Trying to cover yourself with fig leaves of piety? So my response was... The heart's deceitful above all things and utterly wicked. Who can know it? Right? Like, the desires of my heart don't matter. I just want what God wants. Yeah, but what if God wants to bless you and you're disqualifying yourself from being blessed by God because of self-hatred and woundedness and brokenness from your past in those areas? And so Neville began to have this conversation with me where he starts to break this down. So, I, so when I kind of thought it through, I was like, no. I'm not giving the desires of my heart to God. This depression and radical poverty and discouragement and loneliness in ministry had worn me down so much that I really couldn't see anything good in store for me in those areas where I had been hurt. I just couldn't at that stage. And the core beliefs in my heart and mind were wrong. They were negative. They were filled with self-hatred. And so when Neville tells me this, I told him, no. Then he says, brother, there's not a single thing I don't tell God. Not a single thing. The things that I'm afraid of, the things I'm excited about. He says, what I want for my son, what I want for my wife, for my stepson, for the ministry that God's given me. He says, there's not a single thing I don't tell God. I tell him everything. And then he has the audacity to start quoting scripture verses, right? It's dark. It's like 10 o'clock at night. It's dark. Neville isn't, he doesn't have sight. Neville is a blind man. And he starts quoting all these scripture verses and I don't remember all the verses he used. I remember one of them. But he gave like three or four. I think they were nearly all from the Psalms. So I gave three examples. For sure the last one's one that he used. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. Psalm 20 and verse 4. You've given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. Psalm 21, 2. And for sure he used this one on me. Psalm 37 and verse 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. 
And I was so convicted because I realized, God, I'm so sorry. Like, I believe that you love me. I believe that you had the power to save me. I preach in tears about this all over the country to people begging them to believe the things about them that God believes and to believe that God wants to bless and provide for you. But somehow along the way, I lost my first love in some of these areas. The depression, the discouragement had worn me down and I stopped believing that God wanted to bless me in ways like this. And I just realized he's so right. And God, I'm so sorry. I've been so wrong. And he said, brother, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I would strongly encourage you tonight to bring these things to Jesus, to go to him and to give the desires of your heart to him. And I knew Neville was right. So I go to the room where I'm staying and I lay four things before God. Four things. One, two, three, four. So I'm not going to tell you what they are. And I lay these things before God, and I do this every single day, from that day, the beginning of April 2018, until today. And I kid you not, I have witnessed with my own two eyes the hand of God work in every single one of those areas. Every one of them. And I thought, how on earth, I've been so wrong. Like, I was cutting myself off from the blessings God wanted to give me because I hated myself and because I had brokenness and pain from those areas of my life in the past. Some of them, others, I just couldn't conceive God would do something like that. Even though I knew he could, I was just wrestling with believing it. But in Psalm 37, verse 4, it says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And I remember hearing Pavel Goya talk on this. And he said that God doesn't mail the blessings to us. The blessings come with him. And his point was that we're asking for stuff. What we really should be asking is for the source of the stuff and for him to be enough for us. And when we do that, with him comes everything else that you need. You need healing. You need encouragement, right? You need provision. When you're asking for God to receive God, with God comes the things that you need. And what it does is it puts us in the right frame of mind that we're not just saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. It's, I want you. I need you, and with him comes the things that you need. Does that make sense? And I believe the principle here is brought out that when we actually delight ourselves in God, it's safe to give us the desires of our heart because we're going to use them in a way that glorifies him and keeps him at first place. So when we delight ourselves in the Lord, then he can give us the desires of our heart. And so I had kind of a twofold problem because, for one, I wasn't believing the best things that he wanted to do for me, for one. And two... Some of those things, because there was so much pain and woundedness in the past, what you want is healing from your pain. But it's possible to want healing from your pain more than the healer. It's possible to desire the healing more than the physician. And God wants to heal, but God needs us to have our priorities right to ensure that this can be used to fully give glory to Him. It may be a promise from God, and He may want to give this, But are our priorities in the right place? And mine weren't. I was desperate to be healed more than I was desperate to be his. And I had to deal with that. I had to surrender that to him and ask him to rearrange my priorities. And so that became desire number five. The desire of my heart is for you to be more important than anything else that I'm praying for in the desires of my heart. I want you to have the throne in first place. And those four things have turned into six things. And I see him doing things. They're just amazing me. Another situation was a friend of mine posted a quote from this book, Steps to Personal Revival. 
Now, I had heard people tell me about this book multiple times. I know it changed Dwight Nelson's life. He's preached on it. Other people have talked about it. And I kept hearing about it. But I had this problem. I am terrible at reading books outside of the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy. Like, when it comes to my time in prayer, my time for exercise, my time in the Word of God, my time in the Spirit of Prophecy, and all these other things of doing ministry and doing work, it's difficult for me to have additional time to read stuff other than the Bible or the Spirit of Prophecy. But this person posted a quote that was super relevant to what I was going through and just spoke to the heart. And I thought, all right, um, well, let me, let me go back a second. By seeing God work and giving the desires of my heart in certain areas, it gave me the courage and the willingness to believe the best things about what God wanted to do for me. So there were positive changes happening in my mind at the core belief level. Then I see this quote from this book. I don't even remember what the quote was, to be honest with you. But I just felt the Spirit convict me, go buy that book. A little intimidated because I'm bad at buying books. But then I get to the ABC in Collegedale, the promised land. No apologies to Loma Linda. This place is nice, but Collegedale has a, a special place in my heart. And I go there, and the book is in kind of like the front marquee for $2. Now you're talking. And it's like this big. It's not very big either, which is even better because it's less intimidating. I'm not going to spend a bunch of money on something that I feel like I'm never going to read. And so I buy this book for $2. I buy two of them. I don't even know what the book's going to be, but I buy two of them, $2. All right, and as I'm reading this book, I have this transformational experience that begins. Again, it's called Steps of Personal Revival. I don't remember how to pronounce the guy's name. It's a German dude. It's kind of this reddish, orangish book, Helmut Habiel. I, I'm not, I'm, I think I technically am German, but I don't know how to speak German. So anyway, just go to the ABC, Steps to Personal Revival, two bucks. Good on you. All right, so I'm in this situation, I'm reading the book, and the things that I'm reading, are, they're very similar to things I've heard before, but it addresses things in a certain perspective that literally blew my mind. I could not believe what I was reading because they were similar to themes I had talked about, but I totally missed these massive connections. I'm going to go through this text here in a moment. But I remember one thing in particular. As I'm reading this book, it's a Sabbath afternoon. I'm, I'm parked next to the tennis courts and the disc golf course at Southern. It's one of the reasons why it's the promised land. They have disc golf courts, disc golf course on the college campus, as we all should. And I get to page 40. I don't even remember what I read, but I remember having the heaviest of convictions as I'm reading this book, and I even wrote it in my margin. This is what it says. I don't know how to pray for myself. I had committed to a life of intercessory prayer, spending multiple hours a day praying for other people. And this is basically what my prayer life looked like when it came to me. Lord, forgive my sins. Fill me with the, uh, cover, cover me with the blood of Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I need wisdom for these decisions I need to make. And then the rest of my prayer time was basically, anyway, I don't really matter. What really matters is all of these people. And I began a process of just praying for other people. There were seeds of self-hatred even in my own prayer life, and I did not know how to pray for myself. I was seeing amazing, phenomenal miracles in people's lives being changed, people being saved, marriages having things happen in intercessory prayer. But when it came to praying for myself, I didn't know how. And I didn't even feel like I had a need to pray for myself, not because I thought I was awesome or pious or holy, but just the self-hatred had eclipsed my own view of my need and Satan delighted to see it so. I'm sure he did. Sure, I'll let him have blessings for other people. 
but I did not know that I had walls with untempered mortar in my own experience because I didn't know how to pray for myself effectively. And as I began to read through this book, I started to connect some dots for things I hadn't seen before. And it was life-changing. So here's the main things I got out of the book. There's way more to it than this, but here's the things, main things I got out. In John chapter 17 and verse 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And I have taught on this when I talk about devotions. That we, Jesus, I ask the question, do Jesus' prayers get answered? The answer is yes. Well, if Jesus prayed that you would be sanctified by God's truth and that his word is truth, what's the variable in the equation? Me not spending time in the word of God. And so I only looked at this verse in the context of devotions with a massive gaping hole in me not using the word of God in prayer to fight for myself. Learning how to pray God's word back to him in those areas of core beliefs that were wrong, that were hurting me and destroying me, temptations or addictions or weaknesses I had in my experience. I wasn't praying the word of God back to him in these ways. Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. It's not just talking about a devotional life. It's talking about praying the word of God. And I missed it entirely. Completely missed this while doing public ministry. The second and second Peter chapter one, this is a, an amazing one. Second Peter chapter one, how many people have heard the phrase exceedingly great and precious promises? How many people have heard that phrase before? I heard it a billion times. It's in the Bible. Yeah, I know that. And I totally missed the entire lesson all around that phrase in these verses. Second Peter chapter one, beginning of verse three. And his, God's divine power has given to us how many things? All things that pertain to life and godliness through what? A knowledge of him. Remember, that we may know and believe the love that God has for us, right? So everything we need for life and godliness can be found in a true knowledge, an experiential knowledge of God who called us by glory and virtue and by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, through the promises, we may be partakers of the divine nature, and that we can escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. Literally, the Bible says that through the promises of God and a true knowledge of God, we can receive the divine nature and overcome the corruption that's in this world through lust. And, I, and it will give us everything we need for life and godliness, and I totally missed it. So I wasn't praying the promises of God for me in my experience, and in turn wasn't seeing all the fruit that I could have seen. I'm not saying I wasn't converted. I'm not saying I was a, a liar from the pulpit or anything like that. That's not my point. My point was I wasn't having as rich or deep of an experience in response to personal prayer, particularly in the midst of depression, that I could have had. Because I didn't know. And God opened my eyes to this. That time of darkness had robbed me of these experiences. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11 is another one. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. When we claim the promises of God in Scripture and the power of the word of God, it's not a waste of your time. Amen? It's not wasted. God is doing things that you don't even see, silent and imperceptible, like we talked about this morning sometimes. But I lost sight of these things. I was not bringing afresh these promises before God because I was disqualifying myself from the promises of God because of self-hatred and pain in my experience and hardship and difficulty. I got worn down. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says this. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 
2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Right? The weapons that God has in store for us can literally pull down strongholds in our experience. Like what? Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against what? Against a knowledge of God. A true knowledge of who God is. We need to know and believe these things, right? A knowledge of God. And then it says we're to bring every thought captive, into, or every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That those negative thought, those, those core beliefs that are destroying our experience, we need to bring those things captive to the obedience of Christ. We can't allow Satan to keep beating us up by saying, yeah, he's right, I am a loser. Yeah, he's right, I don't deserve fill in the blank. Right? We can bring those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, and God wants that for us, and we can tear down those strongholds of those things that exalt themselves above a true knowledge of God and to know and believe the love that he has for us. Lastly, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 13, this is the main emphasis in this book, is that God is desperately wanting to pour out his spirit upon his people, but we're not asking and that God is more willing to give the Spirit to His people than a father is to give good gifts to his children. And that we need to see our desperate need to be pleading with God for more of His Spirit in our lives for revival. We need to be crying out for more of this. And this is another thing that God was reminding me of. And then there's this amazing quote um, from Christ's Object Lessons that's in that book. This is what it says. In every command and in every promise of the word of God is the power, the very life of God by which the command may be fulfilled and the promise realized. And no one says, wow. You're just spellbound, right? <laughs> I, it's a, I already kind of knew this to some degree, right? I, I believed it in the context of righteousness by faith and the fact that the word of God, that everything that God asks God is willing to provide. I believe that. But when it comes to even in the promises of God, in the commands and the promises of God are the power for the promise to be realized and for the command to be fulfilled. And so if we're not claiming the promises and bringing them to him, it makes sense that we would see this impotence in seeing those things fulfilled in our experience. Are we bringing those promises to God and clinging to those promises? But she continues, he who by faith receives the word is receiving the very life and character of God. That there are aspects of our growth, our revival, and our strengthening that happens through claiming the word of God in prayer and in reading it. And I was losing out on a massive blessing in not doing this. That happened at the beginning of August that I started reading that book. And I've been seeing God work an additional phase of revival in my experience by what I've been doing. I basically now have a locked document on my phone filled with scripture quotes and spirit of prophecy quotes that relate to my struggles, my faulty core beliefs, and the desires of my heart. And I pray them back to God every single morning. And I'm seeing God do amazing things in response to all of them. It's been amazing. And so I'm not writing my own commentary. I literally copy and paste the verse verbatim in the reference. I copy and paste the quote verbatim and paste the reference. And I just read off line upon line all of these promises that God has made to me every single morning. And it's changing my life because the Word of God has the power to create life. We're told that by the Word of God, the universe came into existence. So you mean the very Word that brought a universe into existence can't bring revival into yours? 
He can't fulfill the promises in yours, but it's only going to happen if we put that word into action by claiming and believing these promises. And I didn't do that because Satan had gotten me so beat up and so filled with self-hatred that I disqualified myself from the weapons of warfare that God was wanting to use to set me free. And I had no idea and was living a beat-up experience when I didn't have to. But thankfully, God opened my eyes to this as being, bringing revival into my experience by the grace of God. Here's another thing. I was wrestling with core beliefs that were not true. I found myself wrestling with core beliefs that were crippling my ability to believe what God believed about me or wanted for me because those same areas had been broken or had hurt me in the past. And so it's difficult to believe anything good can happen for you in X area because you've been hurt in X area. And in short, I was not allowing God to get in and do his work of healing in X area as much as he wanted because I wasn't believing his promises. I had surrendered the root structures of what had happened, but I had not fully understood the ramifications of the core beliefs that were still hurting me. Are you with me? And those core beliefs can cripple our experience. And I had not fully realized that until I got into a situation, two different situations actually, where the promises of God were leading me into situations that I could not imagine he would do for me because of all of what I went through in those areas. And by God putting me in those situations and forcing me to believe them, it led me to have to start challenging my core beliefs because God is clearly leading, but I'm believing something else and I'm finding myself wrestling myself out of his arms. I'm afraid to be blessed by him. Literally, I was afraid to be blessed by God because I felt I didn't deserve it because no one else ever loved me or did these types of things for me in these areas. No one else showed me this type of favor with this type of job or whatever. And I just thought like, no way. And so I was trying to disqualify myself from the blessings of God because I had core beliefs that weren't true. Two of them, again, were the most difficult. But once I began to lay those desires in my heart before him, he started to move in ways I had never imagined, and it forced me to have to see this and deal with it. And again, I literally, in the midst of seeing those blessings come, became distrustful and afraid to be blessed. I'm ashamed to admit it, but I was afraid to be blessed by God. It's amazing what pain can do to the human psyche and what Satan and his attacks can do to get us to believe things that are hurtful. They're not helpful and they're limiting in our experiences. I literally was like Abraham. Like I was bartering with God. God says, I'm going to offer you an amazing blessing. You're going to have a child from your own lineage. And my response was, look, why don't you just let Ishmael be the kid? I literally was trying to, to barter with God. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve these things. These are way out of what I ever could have imagined for me. Just give me something else. I don't deserve something that good. Just give me, let me settle for this one. Just let me have Ishmael. And in turn, I was depriving myself of a blessing. I'm trying to wiggle my way out of God's blessings and promises while I'm believing these lies. It seems so irrational, but I was afraid to be blessed by God. And it's because I had seeds of self-hatred from those areas of brokenness in my life. And some of us may be in that situation today, and God's asking us to surrender those core beliefs to Him. Then I had a conversation with some friends in Atlanta, and I didn't even know these people. I was just staying in their home, but I know people that know them. I was supposed to be staying with another friend, but then he gave this lame excuse, right? He wants me to come preach at his church, and then gives me this lame excuse that he can't stay the whole afternoon and have me stay at his house because it's his anniversary. How lame? I'm just kidding. Uh, I would do the, the same thing, totally, 100%. But I didn't get to stay at his house, and so he said, hey, will you stay at my friend's house? Sure. 
So I go to his friend's house, and for whatever reason, I just spill my guts to these people about what I'm wrestling with, these core beliefs I'm wrestling with, how God is blessing and leading, but I'm afraid to receive it. And I had a conversation with them a couple weeks ago, and they reminded me of how beat up and faithless I was when I talked to them. Like, they told me, like, I can't, I, I went through a situation that was discouraging, I'll tell you about that in a moment. And, like, they, they told me, like, we cannot believe who we're speaking to right now. This is not how you were speaking when we talked to you months ago. Like, God is obviously doing something in your heart and challenging those beliefs you had because, and that conversation with them was what kind of set me free. I realized that, like, here's kind of what God's doing in my life, but then they kept trying to explain why I couldn't pursue these different areas. And they kind of challenged me on them, and it was through that conversation, just getting it out there, that on my drive home, the two-hour drive home, God really, really convicted me and told me, son, you don't believe me. You're limiting my ability to work in your life. Why? Why are you separating yourself from these blessings that I've chosen to give you, that I want to give you? And so when I get to main camp meeting, I'm going to go preach there a couple weeks later after that. And I literally had God have this conversation with me that opened my eyes to something that I had not connected the dots on this entire time. I've been doing traveling public ministry for like three years, I guess. I've been doing ministry for longer than that, but like traveling ministry and speaking all these different places. And I find myself many times in tears, pleading with people to believe the things about them that God believes, that God believes in them, that God wants to work in their lives and to bless them and provide for them. And I was of the mind that I believed the gospel with every ounce of my being. I believed that I believed that. The problem was, I believed it in the context of salvation, but I was not allowing that grace and goodness of God to permeate areas of my heart where brokenness and rejection and difficulty and other things had taken place. And this is literally what God told me, and it leveled me. He said, because I'm going through this process of travel, I'm tired. In total honesty, I'm tired, right? I travel by myself. I'm going here and there all the time. I, I literally, through the month of September, I had to buy six one-way plane tickets because I would fly from where I lived or where I was at any point in time to a speaking engagement, and I would go from that speaking engagement to another speaking engagement, and then I would fly from that place back to where I started. That happened twice. I did two weeks of prayers in three weeks. And I had four flights during that span that I had to wake up at 2 a.m. because I'm not going to skip my devotions to get on a 6 a.m. flight. I'm not going to do that. And so I'm having to wake up earlier and do these things, and I'm tired. I want real food. Like, I'm a health nut. Taco Bell is not food. And, like, I'm even wrestling with, with other fast food. Like, even Chipotle doesn't really do it for me anymore. Like, I know I may sound like I'm speaking blasphemy to some of you right now, but just keep listening and just disregard whatever you're hearing if you don't like it. Like, even going to sit down, Thai restaurants and other things, like, I literally just want kale. Like, I, I just want a bowl with kale, sweet potatoes, black beans, and quinoa. Like, I just want real food that's simple, that's homemade. I'm dying, guys, because I'm eating whatever I'm offered at places, and, and a lot of it, I need to be careful, this is going on Audioverse. Um, but like... I'm eating things that may be technically vegan, but like I want real simple food. And I'm not able to lift weights as I want to. I'm running again, which has been a huge blessing. I'll cover that in a moment. But like I've lost seven pounds in the last five weeks. And as you can tell, there's not much of me, right? And so I'm just wrestling with a lot of this stuff and I'm just getting tired. 
And this is literally what God told me. Like, I'm kind of getting to the point, I'd kind of like to settle down, right, put down roots in a place longer term, and, and do some selective traveling, speaking for the things that are important to the school that I'm running and stuff. But I'm kind of getting to the point that I need, to, I need to slow down. It's easy when you have a zeal and a passion to feel like you see something that isn't being done, and if you don't do it, it won't get done. That's James White syndrome, and it will lead to an early grave. And I got I to gotta deal with that. I got to take better care of myself. And so anyway, this is literally what God told me in that context. I could settle you. I could. But the reason why I keep having you travel all over the place and share these same messages and principles with people is because you don't fully believe it. You keep sharing these same messages and making these same appeals because you have not allowed this to permeate it in all of your life. You believe the gospel when it comes to salvation, but you won't let it into these areas of pain in your life. You don't believe me. And the reason why God has allowed me to keep traveling is because he's trying to get it into my head that you don't believe what you're saying fully. I'm not lying to people. My tears aren't fake. I mean what I'm saying. But I did not understand how subconsciously in my pain I was not allowing those same messages to transform me in those areas of brokenness. I believed it in the context of the gospel, but not here. And I didn't know. And through this, God has been opening my eyes to the fact that, D, you don't believe me. Do you actually want to be made well? You keep asking people this question, do you in this area? Will you let me heal you? Will you let me bless you? And will you stop fighting me? And I had to come to a point at May Camp Meeting where I just in tears surrendered my fear, my pain, and my self-hatred to God in this area of my life, in these two areas of my life. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry and take it. I want to be well. I'm willing to believe that you actually want to bless me in these ways. And I'm not going to wrestle with you anymore. And I'm not going to fight you anymore. And I'm sorry. And I literally felt during this time that God was just wrestling with me like he did with Jacob. But instead of Jacob saying, I will not let you go until you bless me, I literally felt as though God was telling me, I'm not going to let you go until you let me bless you. God wouldn't give up on me. I keep trying to disqualify myself. I keep trying to disqualify myself. And God won't let me. Because he loves me too much to keep letting me go on in self-hatred and pain. He wants me to be fully well. And he wouldn't quit. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that God worked so hard to convince me to be willing to receive these blessings in these areas of my life. But then I get up in a situation where one of these things, I end up running into this disappointment that makes no sense. Like, why would God wrestle with me so tenaciously and break me to believe this? And then things seem as though, like, it's not working as I thought it would, and it didn't make any sense to me. And I found myself, it just leveled me. And what I ended up doing in the midst of this difficulty was I just learned to cling tenaciously to God in prayer in ways that I hadn't. I don't even know if I've done this in my life like this. I've been serious and diligent in prayer, but I found myself that I just started running again, but like I literally, the day after that, the, the situation happened, I just felt like Forrest Gump. Like I just have to run. I just, and I just wanted to run until I couldn't. And running has become one of these healthy outlets for me to just get it out of my system, right? Any pain, any frustration, any difficulty, I don't listen to anything. I just run. And I've allowed God to be my running partner. And I ran five miles that night. And the thing was, like, I was, 
it was the worst timing in the history of ever because I literally that next morning after the situation happened, I had to present to justify my own hire and this program through the Pennsylvania conference. It was the worst timing ever. And so like I wake up and then I, I, I don't even sleep that night really. So I'm exhausted. I don't get to eat full breakfast because a meeting that was supposed to happen, but then wasn't going to happen and then did happen. So I didn't eat breakfast. I had a little bit of lunch and a little bit of something else like a, a cliff bar or something. And then when I get done with the day and all this meeting stuff, thankfully I got hired. Thankfully the program got approved. Hallelujah. And I get home and I just got to run. And I end up running five miles that day. And a couple days later, I end up running seven miles. I've never run this far in my life. And as I was running, I talked about this last night, that Sebastian Braxton mentioned in one of his sermons um, about how when, a man, when Jesus says in John 14 that he's going to prepare a place for us, he's talking about a wedding. Like this is a first century wedding context. That the, the man had to go back and build an addition onto his father's house to prepare a place for his bride to come and join him. And he makes this you know, the kind of application you know, in the context of the second coming. Uh, it is a second coming, but also in the context of preparing for marriage and so forth. And I remember when I was, going, when I was running on the seven-mile run that this, this lesson of building a house for my wife, if you will, has ramifications for character building, even for future family ambitions and so forth. But I had kind of a multifaceted view of this phrase, this thought of building a house for my wife of preparing my heart for the second coming, ensuring that I'm, I'm committed and I'm diligent in this, and just for future whatever. And so anyway, as I'm running this seven-mile run, the thought goes through my mind, what are you doing right now? And the immediate thought that came into my head was, I'm building a house for my wife. Like, I'm, I'm not going to keep beating myself up and allowing myself to believe lies and do other things. Like, I'm going to do what it takes to live a lifestyle of recovery coming out of depression. I've got to take care of myself. I'm going to do what it takes to prepare my heart for the second coming, to prepare my heart for future other ambitions, this school and other things. Like, I got to do what needs to be done, and I just wanted to run and run and run. I probably could have run 10 miles that night if I wanted, but I didn't want to hurt my body too early. But through that process of a disappointment and something I didn't understand, I found myself praying with a desperation that I don't think I've ever had. I went from praying once a day about a certain situation to praying twice a day about this and just pleading the promises of God. And literally the next morning after this disappointment happened, I get to the point in my prayer time where I claim the promises of God in this area of my life. And I literally argued with God and said, I want to do this right now. I can't do this right. I don't want to do this. I don't want to believe it. I don't want to believe something. I just can't right now. But I did. And I ugly cried through the whole thing. Just a mess cried through the whole thing. And it happened every single day, twice a day, for like 10 straight days of just weeping as I'm laying the promises before God. But it taught me such a valuable lesson that looking back at this, I literally have been able to praise God in total sincerity for the pain I went through during that time. Because it taught me how to dig even deeper and to trust God in ways that I hadn't before. And to believe even when it hurt. Have you ever been in a situation where it hurt to believe what God said? It just cripples you and you just cry and grieve and hurt to believe what God said? It taught me lessons on faith that I hadn't learned in years, if at all. And I could in earnesty and sincerity, in earnestness and sincerity, 
Praise God that that pain came into my life. Ellen White says that there will be a time that we look back upon the darkest hour, we'll look back with thankfulness upon the darkest hour of our way. And I came to better understand that through that season. And then another situation came during my birthday. Um, and I had gotten, I had been reminded of some messages I had heard before where people were praying for wayward children. And I learned how to pray with an even deeper earnestness and like one of those moments where it says in Romans, whenever like you don't know how to pray, but the spirit groans with words that cannot be uttered, where like there's just this depth of grief and, and earnestness in your prayer that you can't even put words to. And God then brings that into my experience. And I just have found that this has literally, like all of this is because there were these initial promises from God or these situations that just seemed like they were totally out of, out of any realm of possibility for me. And God, through the promise of blessing, in spite of how I felt in areas of brokenness, is literally raising me from the dead. It's literally changing my life, guys. Like, I'm fighting with an earnestness in prayer that I don't think I've ever had in my life. I'm literally closer to God now than, defor 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 than before the depression came. And I can thank God for the pain that I've had to go through this situation because I'm not the person that I was before. And through that depression, I came face to face with who I really was. Through that rock bottom, I came to see a lot of the root structures and the brokenness in my life that I had to deal with that now I'm so grateful because he's teaching me again how to build a house for my wife. He's teaching me how to prepare for a future, whether it be on this life or for eternity, in stuff that I hadn't dealt with before and didn't even know that I needed to deal with. And God in his great mercy is setting me free in ways that I cannot even tell you. And he's teaching me how to learn how to pray and believe until it hurts. God literally has used restoration to reach me twice. Twice. The Restoration 2004 series that David Ashrick did here was a series I heard later on the internet. But it, it was one of the biggest things that brought me into the Adventist church, hearing those messages. And what God did for me through this process of these blessings and these things happening and these things that kind of scared me, I was afraid to receive and the pursuit of them all, all of these things, from what happened in 2004, and now it's happening this year, from restoration to now, literally God has used restoration to reach me twice. He's restoring my life. It's changed my life, and I cannot tell you how grateful I am for this. So in closing, I want to read this quote. It's from Manuscript Releases 161, 1897. It is not praiseworthy to talk of our weakness and discouragement. I'll give you a moment to repent. It is not praise where they talk of our weakness and discouragement. Let each one say that I am grieved that I yield to temptation, that my prayers are so feeble and my faith so weak. I have no excuse to plead for being dwarfed in my religious life, but I'm seeking to obtain completeness of character in Christ. I have sinned and yet I love Jesus. Did you know that it's possible to be in situations where you fall in sin and still have love for Jesus in your heart? You stumbled, you messed up, but you still love him. I've sinned and yet I love Jesus. I have fallen many times and yet he's reached out his hand to save me. I've told him all about my mistakes and I've confessed with shame and sorrow that I've dishonored him. And I've looked to the cross and said, all this he suffered for me. The Holy Spirit has shown me my ingratitude, my sin in putting Christ to open shame, and he who knows no sin has forgiven my sin, and he calls me to a higher and nobler life, and I press on to the things that are before. 
When you're going through difficulty and you mess up and you fall along the way, keep getting up. Keep claiming the promises that he's made and choose to believe what he says about you. Amen? It'll change your life. I'm going to close with one psalm here and then one more thought and we're done. Sorry, I went a little bit long today. I've never shared this before. Go to Psalm chapter 18 and verse 6. God literally in the midst of my grief and my pain told me that I'm going to bring you out of this and you're going to tell the story of what I've done for you. This is what David talks about all throughout the Psalms. I had a need. I was hurting and I cried out to God and I have every intention that when God responds to my prayer, I will declare publicly what God has done for me. You see this theme regularly throughout the Psalms, but go to Psalm 18 and verse 6. The other ones you can just write down the references because I don't have time to read them. But Psalm 18 and verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, and I cried out to my God, and he heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him even to his ears. This is my closing point to you, young people. And beloved, whatever darkness you may be going through today, God wants you to know that he does hear and answer prayer. Amen? I can testify to you today as a man who's been raised from the dead in my experience that God does hear, God does care when you're grieving and hurting and don't understand why things aren't happening and it doesn't make any sense. I went through years of wondering why the darkness wouldn't leave. I kept reading, I kept praying, I kept preaching, I kept giving Bible studies, but why won't the cloud leave? God heard every one of those prayers. God saw every one of those tears and he cares, amen? They do not go unheard. They do not go ignored or neglected. There's a God in heaven who hears when you cry, and he can change your life and raise you from the dead. He can heal those areas of brokenness and rejection and fear and insecurity. He literally can set you free. We're told in Romans 8, 11, that the very spirit that rose Jesus from the dead can bring life to your mortal bodies. He can do it. I'm seeing it in my own experience. I believe in resurrections from the dead because I've been dead while doing ministry. And he didn't give up. He didn't stop. And he can do the same for you. Amen? Let's pray. God in heaven, I just want to thank you that you care, that you do hear our cries. And Lord, I pray that that point has been made clear this afternoon, that there is a God in heaven whose love knows no bounds and Lord, that you will not let us go until you let us, until we let you bless us. God, we need that today. And I pray that whatever core beliefs and other battles that we're facing that are hurting us and crippling us, I pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine light into that darkness. And Lord, that you would set us free indeed. I just thank you so much for what you are doing and for what you're going to do in each of our lives. And I pray that we would believe the promises more fervently, that we would be praying the word of God in those promises with a tenacity that we have not known to date, and that we would witness the healing and miraculous power of God, that we would witness our own resurrections, and that the story of our resurrection can lead to someone else choosing to believe the best things about them that you believe for them as well. This is our plea today, Lord. Get glory out of this story, I pray. And I thank you for saving my life and for raising me from the dead. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.